Welcome to Five Lives to 50, the sustainability podcast for product managers. This is episode four, what gets missed when designing sustainable products and why care. I am Shelley Metcalf and I'm with my two co-hosts today, Jim Fava and Neil D'Souza to look at this topic with you and discuss how sustainability pitfalls enter product development and how you could avoid them by knowing what to look for. Let's get started. Neil, you are a product manager. Can you describe how you've seen sustainability embedded into product development? It's a good question, Shelley. I actually have been a product manager for software. So it's slightly different than when you're looking at physical products. But I think more of my experience has come from my work with product managers and engineers in the manufacturing space. And that kind of formalized itself into a bit of a product management structure that I think would be good to, to explain to answer that question. I think if you look at the, the toolkit of a product manager, there are six stage gates to de- developing any product. It starts with discovery, where the goal is to find ideas. and you, Ideas come from everywhere, as, as they say. You know, you could be looking at new technologies that you see on, on the markets. You would look at things like demographics, right? So who's buying what? There's a big green trend that has been going on and ever increasing of the last, I would say, 20 years or so. Product development is a very is a messy process. There is no straight line, but I'm trying to create these these kind of buckets where um, you know the discovery starts that process where you have an epiphany and you say, hey, you know, now I want to I want to look at maybe is there something that that could help my product, my business, in that regard. This leads to the second stage, which is more the desktop research, the things that we all do, right? Google it and check if it works. We're trying to build hypotheses here. Would it work? Is it going to be better? Is there a, a different market that we could address? Is it a bigger market? Is it real? Is, is, this, is this even viable? There's not a lot of, uh, of activity that you're doing with the rest of your team. This is mostly on your computer, speaking with people. This is where, if you're looking at sustainability, you would you would think of doing a couple of LCAs, right? Top-down, very crude LCAs, lifecycle assessments, where you say, I want to look at a new kind of battery that is low weight, so low size, high power for an e-scooter or for a more sporty vehicle or something like that. Would you, for example, would I be able to create a battery for a vehicle with a thousand kilometers of range? This is where you're trying to create these hypotheses and say, hey, you know, are people going to buy it? Are people, is this even technically viable? Uh, have people done it before? This is that scoping phase. And there's a lot that one can do to see what is already available. You know, it doesn't make sense to create a new battery if your main market segment right now is the Middle East or China. These are things that are not obvious, right? You may say, it's a battery, it must be better, but that's not always the case. When you look at it from the entire life cycle of things, the biggest impact from a battery comes from the use of it, right? When you charge it, and depending on what kind of grid you charge it from, impacts the overall performance of that product. And I think looking at this from the life cycle perspective at this stage already allows you to understand uh, and rule out some of these hypotheses that may not make a lot of sense. The next stage is business case, where you're looking at this both from a technical perspective, would it work, right? And how would you get it to work? But also from a market perspective, if it were to work, is this really going to make business sense? Is it going to be twice as expensive where nobody can buy it? How many people would be buying it if it's a new market segment? How big is that market segment? If it's a new uh, geography, would be able to address that geography? I think this is where I think looking not just at an individual product, but looking at the portfolio of products that you're responsible for uh, plays a pivotal role in 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 creating that business case. Because very often, 
you will not get attention as a product manager. I've seen this myself. Uh, unless there's a there's a big impact that one can make a dent on the top or bottom line, um, there's not a lot of attention you get to take this project from the business case to the next stage, which is where you need to put resources into developing that particular idea. That's the fourth stage of it. This is when the idea meets, meets reality and it never goes the way you planned. So uh, I've spoken to so many product managers where they had an idea of how they could design a particular product. But when they actually started to build it, they realized the tools don't work. The processes that they have or the machines they have don't work. They can't find suppliers for certain materials and so on. And I think this is where very often you find going back to that scoping stage where there's a lot of desktop research that you will do. And I think what's important to consider here is not to stray too far away from those initial hypotheses, right? Because those are the things that you've you've kind of informed with lifecycle assessments, with looking at what has been done before. And I think very often we find product managers, they will look to solve a problem that they identify, but then forget about what are the consequences of making that change. The stage after that, uh, I think, is the testing and validation phase where you test the hypotheses of the benefit that you would have from from taking that product to market actually could come to fruition. And you would test this with, with, with market studies. This is also where many companies look at the stage gates for compliance and sustainability. Do they meet the criteria uh, that would allow them to take the product to market, both external from a regular, regulatory perspective, but also internally from a company perspective? Right? There are very often companies that say, we want to get to 30% reduction in the next 10 years, and therefore... We need to make sure that every new product that we make has at least a 50% reduction on impact. And this is typically where the testing and validation phase comes in. And these kind of processes become part of that, where you're doing more robust analyses, slightly more detailed, I would say, than what you would find in the early stages and the scoping stages. But this is where it becomes a little more uh, more realistic based on what, based on what are the supplies that you'd be using, what are the real final materials that you'd be using, and so on and so forth. And the last is the launch phase. It's how do you take all of this work that you've done and position the product in a way that it was envisaged, right? You are looking at if this product is using uh, 50% less water or has been created out of 30% more recycled content and recycled materials from, from the battery materials that you're using, or is part of a producer responsibility program where you're, um, where you're circling back or you plan to circle back a lot of the materials that you're, you, you put into this battery. I think these are things where you need to quantify them, you need to verify them, and they become part of the go-to-market. And I think this is, this is the frame in which product managers typically look at how they can embed this new concept of sustainability or thinking about the sustainability aspects of the product. Sometimes it doesn't just have to be a new sustainable product. Sometimes it's just a new innovation or an iteration of an existing product that makes it more sustainable. But I think it's not just about making that product more sustainable. At the end of the day, you also need to capitalize on that, on that sustainability improvement that you've made. That is not just done in the early stages of design, but at every stage of this product's going to market, you need to consider how you how you leverage that. Because at the end of the day, it is an investment. It is more time that you would spend that otherwise you probably don't need to, right? Or you would not, or you would not, let's say not say you wouldn't need to, but you would not have put in that time. So what is the additional benefit that you get? And I think that's that's how each of the stages allow you or give you the opportunity to be able to leverage that work. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, you've given us a good overview of the stage gate process that a product might go through and the sustainability metrics to consider. And for our listeners who'd be interested in a deeper dive and how to embed sustainability into each of those stage gates, that's actually going to be the focus of some of our upcoming episodes to, to look out for. Uh, Neil, I was curious, though, you have mentioned to me in the past that maybe the product manager isn't responsible for the sustainability aspect in each stage gate. Can you just say more about what might be relevant to consider for walking a product through its stage gates and how that sustainability metric or responsibility might get passed to different product managers? The product manager's ultimate goal is to make trade-offs. And uh, trade-offs happen at different, I think, different levels of the product. But you have to also think of this, that products are typically seen in the context of which portfolio they fit into. When you look at large organizations, we're not just building a single product. Not only are the products, do the products tend to be more, more complex, but they also belong to a bigger portfolio of products. And this is where I would say you have different hierarchies of product managers that are making decisions at different levels. Should I use material A or material B is one is one such thing. Should I choose to make this kind of product that is part of my portfolio or cycle it out of that portfolio is a completely different question to answer, right? And that's a that's above certain people's pay grades. And I think the only way to do this, and I think Jim has a lot of experience in this field, is to set the right goals and have the right mechanisms of, of measuring improvement at any of these levels. I think if you look at a lot of companies, large companies right now, especially in the own order space, one of the things that they've, they've been doing is by transitioning more and more of their portfolio to electric and to alternative fuels, they're reducing their scope three environmental emissions for the entire corporation. Not by changing existing products, just by adding new products to the portfolio and cycling out old products. This is one way to improve sustainability of, of, of an entire organization without changing an existing product at all. You're just bringing new products in. Right? But very often you also see companies working at fixing the products that they currently have in the market because that makes the most business sense. And I think these are different levels of conversations or different levels of decision making that typically are not in control of an individual product manager. The other aspect of this is some of the decisions that are made are very operational. How you, what kind of material you use will decide what kind of manufacturing process you can employ, right? And manufacturing processes have a huge leverage in terms of the yield of the final product. If you're using a machining or you're using a casting, the amount of material you need compared to the amount of waste you produce for each product step is humongously different. And I think uh, this is where very often product managers kind of stay out of it because you have engineers to solve this problem and they give recommendations on what's the best way. So I think the, the recommendation I would have is to use the same metric across all of the decision-making processes that you have. Whether this is carbon, whether this is water, whether this is, uh, this is recyclability, I think there are even aggregated metrics, normalized metrics, single scores, as you call them, that allow anyone in the organization to evaluate any decision they make across this, this single score. Is it better or worse? There's several companies in the, in the consumer goods space that have tried to do this. There are some that in, in the, in the automotive space that are trying to do this. I think one of the metrics that are used more often than, than others is, is water and carbon at the moment, two distinct metrics. And if you look at any product decision across the entire life cycle and you say, what is the carbon impact of this particular change across the entire life cycle? I think you can use this same decision metric across any, any level that I described until now. 
And I think that's what's important to have that same metric. So you can compare a decision where you say, should I change a screw or should I rip out the entire chassis? Right. And I think the difference to the sustainability impact will be determined by this particular metric at any of these levels. It's good to know. Jim, I just want to pivot over to you and just your experience with setting the right goals across an organization when it comes to sustainability. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that? One of the things, I guess, when you look at setting the setting the goals and you got to look at consequences of meeting those goals or the con- and the benefits of meeting those goals. And over the 30 years that I've been working with companies, product sustainability, and with the, the folks as they interact with the innovation teams, a couple of the sort of examples that come to mind that sort of illustrate sort of the benefits of operating sustainably within the stage gate process. Uh, we had one client as part of the product sustainability roundtable was very interested in uh, getting a, a position in the green building sector. But they had heard that the green building sector and this one client was actually looking and adding sustainability metric, uh, environmental metric as part of the decision-making process of them selecting a supplier. Uh, But they didn't believe it. They just didn't think it was the time. It wasn't relevant to them. And they ignored it. And the consequences was they lost that, that work. And so I think there's a part of this is really having the product manager and the people who are interacting with the the customers having a clear understanding of what those issues are and what are the criteria that the client is going to be making our criteria to use to make decisions. And this is just an example where they lost a customer, but by actually adding the sustainability metrics to their innovation process, they could have increased their positioning, you know, with the customer. And this is just one simple example where you really have to have it embedded into the innovation process with that in mind, there's a chemical company in Germany that we've worked with with years. And one of the things they did for the last quite a few years have been sort of the leader in the sustainability area with eco-efficiency, with the sustainable steering uh, in terms of portfolio analysis, and, uh, and the whole way of looking at sustainability issues associated with their products and their materials and their chemicals that they sell. A lot of times, they were a little bit ahead of the time. A few customers were asking for it, and they were out promoting wonderful brand enhancement associated with that, so there's a good business value. The other thing they found now that the whole area of clients are beginning to say, we want a sustainable lower carbon footprint uh, chemical or use less water, as Neil talked about, they are now well positioned because they've got the tools, they've done the embedding, they've done the training to get the innovation team and the engineers fully aware of what this life cycle sustainability metrics are, what they are, and the value they can bring to the table. So this is an example we're being prepared and building the, the tools, building the understanding of how the tools are used, building the understanding of how the information can be used in decision-making, all tied back to sort of their overall target and goal kind of a perspective. One of the other things that we're finding when we start talking to, to companies is that if your new technology and new material comes, and as Neil talked about that as you know, one of the, the stages, is that you're beginning to look at someone who's been in the field for 15, 20, 30 years, they're used to dealing with certain materials. And one of the dilemmas in terms of trying to move forward and being innovative in the innovative uh, stage gate process is that I've been doing it one way for 20 years. It's sort of this resistance to change. And what's part of that and what we're finding is that it really needs to be addressed in a way that when you look at these changes 
and the ideas that make down to you know, the sustainability metrics and so forth, as you start from the scoping and, and discovery and all the way through through the business case, that you really began to, to see how that impacts that person's who may be resistant to change. How does it impact his or her actual performance and job or bonuses? So you can be able to be able to bring it to that level of connectivity. But this whole concern about resistance to change, it's not it hasn't been a proven technology. But with greener products, more sustainable products, these things are coming to the market and companies have to be prepared and evaluate those. And this is where folks that are providing lifecycle information can give them the information they need to make that decision. Another example is this issue of the complexity of an implementation, you know, the whole decision-making process. Who makes the decision? Is it a product manager? Is it this department over here? Is it another department manager over there? And it was really a very complex situation in big organizations. Smaller organizations, there's three or four people, you can sit around and talk. But when the vice president has 300 people, another one has 500 people, it's a very sort of elaborate conversation about how you make those decisions and who makes those, those decisions in a whole product. Because they're interrelated, Jim, right? Because it's not just I can work in my own team. I mean, if you choose a different material that's or a different supplier, it affects the other business unit as well or could affect it. And I think that that's what overcomplicates these discussions and debates very often. Yeah, you're 100% right. And I just give you an example that we did as part of our product sustainability roundtable, we had a couple of clients. One was a provider of uh, cleaning material for buses. The other one was New York City Transit, which provided transportation buses across the five boroughs of New York City. And they had to clean the buses every so often. And what they were currently doing was buying, I don't know, 20, 50-gallon barrels of cleaning material to use to clean the buses. And what the alternative was, this, this other company was a PSRT member who was a supplier of cleaning materials. Instead of providing 50-gallon drums, they provide a 500-gallon tote where you didn't have to manage the movement of barrels back and forth, and you could clean the buses directly. The dilemma was is that the first cost to purchase the 500-gallon totes were high. But then the cost of operating it was somebody else's responsibility. And so what happened was, is that they got to the point where the procurement people didn't want to buy that because that reduced their budget and had increased first cost. Uh, on the other hand, the operational cost was a different manager. And it really took a long time to go sort of go up both sides to get to the point where the total cost of ownership of having the tote was actually better for the company or the organization. Than, than doing it the old way, because from a procurement standpoint, they had they spent less money on getting the material because there was all this other additional cost savings in it from a total cost of ownership standpoint. So to me, that was just a good example of the complexity in these bigger organizations that really creates a time effort. And in an innovation, you don't always have that time. You need to make those decisions quickly. That's why having tools out there now that allow people to get information quicker and then people understand what the outcome is, really is a very valuable process. So these are just a couple of examples when you start looking at implementing some of this that you have to take into account to very efficiently and effectively embedding sustainability into the innovation process. That's a great example, Jim. And I'd like to maybe just change the angle that we're looking at this with. And I want to ask about, suppose there aren't incentives for an organization or product manager to include sustainability 
Can you describe some of the reasons that ignoring sustainability could be detrimental to a product success? Sure. And I think a lot of it comes back to the business value. If you don't have a sustainable product, you're going to lose customers. If you don't have a sustainable product, you're going to create a brand, a negative brand um, image. And if you don't have sustainable product that meets the environmental or social regulations. And right now, as Neil communicated a number of times in our podcast, there are a number of regulations that are surfacing almost weekly, you know, in Europe and North America and Asia Pacific on, on products, you know, not just on the operational side, but on the product. Um, you're you're going to be out of a market if you don't understand what these are and comply. I mean, the U.S. recently put a proposal out that they're going to purchase environmental and sustainable products and services. And it's going to be a pretty impactful. That's the U.S. government, right? That's the the largest the largest single buyer in the world will yeah is going to mandate uh, sustainable procurement. Um, and we know Holly, the woman who's been at EPA, is helping to lead that, and she's been an advocate for it for a long time. And that sort of North U.S. sustainable product procurement proposal is as equal and strong as the EU's Green Deal program. So there's two regions of the world that have really committed. It's not just a, a business-to-business kind of combination and conversation now. It's really actually the government, which are huge procurement buyers, are saying, we're going to buy greener, more sustainable products. And to me, that's probably one of the biggest benefits by having a embed sustainability into the stage gate process. You're going to be well-positioned to compete in all of those marketplaces as you go forward. I think there's something something to add there in that 10 years ago, there weren't so many examples of companies that lost out. Right? There were lots of companies that gained from sustainable products. You had entire brands that were created around sustainability and they did really well. I mean, if you look at five years ago in Germany with the, the bio-based products, organic products, product lines across different brands, uh, they did, I mean, the fastest growing segment, right, uh, out here in Germany and Europe. But I think in, in recent years, you're actually seeing customers losing because of it, right? And that's a, if you, if you look at how people think it is, if I can avoid losing money, I will pay attention to you much more than if I told you I could make you twice as much more money. And I think this is what's happening more and more. We, we had a customer where they lost not a couple of million, but hundreds of millions of euros just in a single year to competition who could position their products better and who made a better, uh, who did a better job of communicating what the sustainability value of their products were. And a lot of product managers are learning this the hard way by actually losing out to competition. And that's a very easy way to teach product managers. You cannot ignore this anymore. Right? When you lose hundreds of millions, not, not just a couple of million where you can write it off and say, hey, you know, this is, a, this is an aberration. And this is now repeating itself year after year after year. I think it becomes very easy to make the case that it is no longer about whether you have the right incentives to do it. It is you will lose if you don't. And we see this happening more and more now. So I think this thing of, of incentives was a problem five years ago. And I think in certain places, it may make sense where, you know, the, the market is not as demanding as in certain other cases like consumer goods space or whenever you have public procurement uh, playing a huge game in this, right, a huge role in, in a company's uh, future or in B2B businesses where if you see right now, maybe maybe you have a big split in terms of the end consumer who is willing to 
pay more money for more sustainable products or who would go out of their way to buy more sustainable products. Maybe there's a bigger split there. But if you're looking at B2B, there is way more pressure on sometimes self-imposed, sometimes based on the industry itself. But there's way more pressure on companies, large companies. Think of the big brands, right? Apple and Microsoft and these kind of brands where they have immense pressure to demonstrate sustainability. And therefore, they show that in what they buy. And if you're a customer of these kind of mega brands, all right, whether you're Amazon or whoever these are, if you're customers to these big brands, you then will lose out if you don't have the most sustainable product, or at least can demonstrate that you are working towards sustainability in your products. And I think this is this is what has changed in the in the last three to five years, I would say, where this this pain has become much more than what it was before. It was previously just an opportunity, now it's starting to become pain. Yeah, and Neil, sort of following up on the example I talked about in the chemical company, I mean, they were prepared to get the internal know-how and experience and understanding of what sustainable metrics are related to their products. And they got some uptake, but it wasn't until the customers really started asking. And the situation was in a B2B that they were able to respond immediately because they had the internal tools. So there's a sort of a being proactive and not waiting for it to happen, but being proactive and anticipating is another activity. And we've seen a lot of that with companies that is part of their strategy. So we're just going to be a compliant strategy. So whatever the government tells me to do, we do. But then you have this sort of, you're, you're sitting there and then all of a sudden they ask you to do, the government requires you to do all this stuff to be able to sell in the country and you're not prepared. Or you say, I'm going to wait till the customer, but you don't look at it proactively. You don't have a system in place to really check with customers about what they're doing. We see this so many times. If you are going to address the situation when a customer asks for it, then you've already lost that customer. Because the answers to these questions don't come from one day to the next. It takes it takes a couple of years to get things in order so you can respond to a customer. And think of it, right, in the B2B space. I think in B2B, B2C, this is, this is different where you need to have it in advance of the product going to market because it determines you know, how you position it and how customers buy it. But in B2B, it's a salesperson, right? It's an account executive that is responsible for positioning that product with the customer. And if that person doesn't have the information they need, to be able to win that deal, and you've lost that customer. And I think this is this is one of the reasons why the same customer, I think I know who you're talking about, they are killing it in the market right now, right? Because they're just ready with it. And uh, we speak with customers who are more downstream from the chemical supply, from the chemical producers, and they principally say they are not, so several of them, right? Not all of them, but several of them are like, for new product, we're not even considering manufacturers that cannot give us carbon footprints of their products. I mean, that's not a detail anymore, right? Where you can't, they, they will keep their existing contracts because they need to do this. But think of this, right? So five years cycle to cycle out old products. That's usually how long it takes. It's five lives to 50. In five years time, imagine you're not doing business with this customer anymore. It takes that long to create your new product and to communicate about it and to position yourselves in that way, right? So if you're not doing it now, it's, it's almost always already too late for it. Yeah, well, and the thing is, a company doesn't have one product manager. It may have hundreds, thousands, depending on how big, big they are. And there's some customers, as Neil talked about, are going to be very aggressive, proactive, and are really going to be looking for sustainable products to, to purchase. And there are other brands or other sort of markets which aren't as advanced. And so companies who are really leadership companies, and particularly in the, in the sort of the B2B space, 
are really beginning to look at portfolio sustainability assessment, how to look at the whole range of products uh, that go through and the whole, you know, all the various product managers that are having to, you know, to collaborate with some kind of a overall corporate uh, process to put their products into this, uh, I don't know, Clint Eastwood, the good, bad, and ugly, that's not exactly terminology, but the ones that are really good from a sustainability standpoint where customers want it, um, some that are sort of middle of the road, and some that, you know, may not be a good sustainability performer and may not have the same driver for customers. And you begin to put your products into those categories. So it helps the senior managers, it helps the decision makers, uh, it helps the product managers as to what kind of emphasis do I need to add for sustainability into the actual innovation process for my particular uh, product. So they're not trying to do it, you know, totally in a vacuum, but they're doing it a recognition that I'm part of an overall corporation uh, where we have portfolio analysis. And so I think that's another direction that I think is happening and that requires some consistency among the various product managers. So they're looking at the same basic criteria, particularly in the, uh, in the discovery stage and scoping you know, when you're beginning to look at, okay, what are those hotspots? What are things that are meaningful to my particular product, which may be different than, you know, my buddies over here, which is an entirely different business unit. They may have different hotspots, but we can share that information as part of this portfolio assessment kind of perspective. So that's the other sort of angle on this that I think is happening. Uh, and it's exciting because companies are beginning to say, we've got to look at an entire portfolio. We just can't look at one product and now, okay, now we're a green company because we got one green product. It's it's the whole portfolio. When you want to get to the point where you're driving more and more of your products towards sustainability, sustainable product, and your ones that aren't being sustainable or don't have a market, customers are, are and the companies are saying, hey, maybe I should get rid of that. I, I need to change that. They're looking at it from managing the products in an entirely different way. I'd like to bring in the idea of life cycle thinking. This is something I've heard both of you mentioned before. And I'm wondering if with the successes you're seeing, is, is this something that is being embedded in these organizations that they're thinking more in a life cycle thinking way? And I, for our listeners, if, if they don't know what that is, maybe could I get Jim, I know you've done a lot of work in your career on this to describe what that is and its relevance right now. We've been using the the terminology, always use life cycle thinking, apply life cycle assessment where it makes sense to, to, to do so. But early on in the ideation stage, and particularly in the, in the discovery and scoping, companies are beginning to look at hotspot analysis, looking at okay, what are the core uh, key, key criteria that I would need to think about for this particular product that's going through the innovation stage. But what we're beginning to see that it's it's still looking at a broad perspective where you're looking at life cycle issues associated with you know raw materials acquisition. You're looking at things related to energy and from the production manufacturing. You're looking at things related to uh, distribution and use and the end of life management. But you're doing more of a life cycle management. You're not or mapping. I'm sorry. You're not really looking at it from a, a strictly input output like you would in an LCA, but you're beginning to think about, okay, where do my raw materials come from? You know, at least uh, if it's a it's a uh, product extension kind of thing, you know, where the manufacturing might be, you know, how we're going to distribution and use and what's going to happen at the, the end of life. So you're beginning to map this out and beginning to look at, okay, what are those issues along that, those critical life cycles, the stages? And so life cycle thinking is really a powerful tool for promoting sustainability and responsible consumption and production. 
or providing this broader and more sort of a clear understanding of those broader issues without getting into the you know, the traditional sort of input-output kind of analysis that you would have at an LCA. But it does give you a pretty good perspective. And so one of the things that we've often get asked, okay, say, what does it mean? You know, we get a, you know, from a specifier would say, okay, what, what, what does life cycle thinking mean to me? And so one of the things that the specifier look at is ask the supplier is what have I done to move from a negative to a positive impacts? If I like water or uh, carbon, as Neil talked about earlier, may be a critical one. So that's something a specifier, you know, can do. A supplier, on the other hand, you know, can begin to look at, okay, I know what my customers' concerns are from a, and are what my corporate concerns are, whether it's carbon or water or, you know, materials of concern. I could begin to start positioning from a life cycle thinking perspective what my material might be to help meet those customer needs. And so the engineer is also what could be from a life cycle thinking perspective is begin to look at, okay, what are the tools and information that will allow me to use this life cycle thinking information to embed into my, my process to help inform decision choices. So it becomes a very powerful tool to really inform decisions based on you know, best available knowledge, based on good understanding of the life cycle systems and the life cycle stages and the relevant hotspots associated with that product. So we see life cycle thinking as a very powerful tool and is beginning to use over and over again across the board in many roles within a company. I think I'd like to add to that. This idea of thinking about where your product is going to be used and what will happen after that. So think of a screw, right? If you want to put up a painting on a wall, I always give this example because it's, it's very basic. It's very simple. If you want to put up a painting on a wall, you can make this screw out of steel. Right. It's a good material, easy to find, cheap. It's a little heavy, but it's one of the best materials you can use to put up a painting on a wall. If you want to put a plane together, you should not make it out of steel. Right? That, that screw should be made out of a very light material. You are a person making screws. Depending on what is the use, what's the purpose of that product you're making, it could be the same dimensions, the same specifications of the screw, just choosing a different material will decide whether you should use it for a plane or should use it on a wall. And I think this is not always obvious. As a person making a screw, this is not, uh, you, know, you don't think of what will the screw be used for? And I think looking at this, it becomes more complicated when you're looking at a car or a battery or something like that. Should I make the battery big so that it can store more charge and therefore you acquire less number of uh, cycles for the entire life cycle? Therefore, over the life cycle of the entire car, you need fewer batteries as opposed to making something smaller, lightweight that you need to charge more often and therefore over the lifetime of a car, which is whatever, 300,000 kilometers, you need two, probably three battery changes in, in this regard, right? And then you need to look at all the materials you need for it. So it becomes very complicated when you think of this in, in context of it, but it's super important because the impact could be the, the complete opposite of what you're thinking, simply because you're thinking of it in the wrong phase. I'm thinking of it, hey, you know what the impacts that it, that it takes to manufacture? And you may say, hey, you know, then let's just make a small battery. Right, because it's the lowest impact, the lowest amount of material, the lowest amount of energy you need to assemble it together. But when you put it into a car, you need to drive that car for 300,000 kilometers, which is the lifetime of a car. I need two or three of these batteries. Therefore, I need to repeat that three times as opposed to a single battery that I would create that is just bigger and lasts the entire lifetime of a car. I think this is thinking about it in this way allows you to understand the implications of environmental impacts because unlike money that you pay for gas or for electricity or for raw materials or for labor it's here and now 
but a lot of the impacts that I embedded into the making of a product happen far upstream and far downstream of that activity that you have. And you have control over it as a product manager. And I think this thinking is important when you're, when you're looking at it from a sustainability perspective. Because you may not be paying for the gas that drives the car, the electricity that's used to charge the electric vehicle, right? But the way you designed your battery will determine that. Great point. Yeah, and just one quick comment on that. I think the things that I'm seeing now in the marketplace, as you start hearing about solar panels and some of these batteries, and you know, 10, 25 years later, once the product has been on the market, there's an end-of-life management issue. It's now become sort of a landfill problem. They knew 25 years ago that um, 25 years is a lifespan. They knew there would be a, a problem, but you can do that in the innovation stage by sort of flagging that as a hotspot that something needs to be managed and getting to the point where you've identified the right parties, the right stakeholders who could be managing and dealing with the end of life, that particular product or early on and establishing business relationships with it. So when the time comes for that product's useful life to be over, there's an infrastructure, there's ability to recover and reuse, recycle, uh, whatever the right end of life management uh, solution is for those particular products. So I think that's another element that complicates sort of the innovation. So it's not just launching, but also gets into the post-launch aspect of it is what happens when the useful life of that product is over and how do you manage that and who manages that is, a, is, I think is another whole conversation that I have. But it's happening because we, we're getting examples of products who've been on the market for a while who now their useful life is over, or at least for that particular model. Uh, they got new models coming up all the time, but for ones that are in the market, their useful life is over and how is that to be managed? And that's becoming part of many, many conversations right now of how to best handle that. And it needs to be, from my perspective, handled as part of the innovation process. We could just keep going, couldn't we? Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Five Lives to 50. If you like what you heard, have used an idea from our podcast, or want to share a topic for a future podcast episode, write to us and let us know. You can reach us by email at contact at fivelives50.com. And we look forward to seeing you at our next episode where we will be going into how to successfully embed sustainability into the discovery scope and business case stage case. Bye for now. <laughs>